Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, several high-ranking Ethiopian military and civilian officials were killed. What does this latest episode of violence tell us about Ethiopia's stability? Botswana's ruling party has suffered an unprecedented rupture as the former president breaks from the party his father founded. Is this a positive development for democracy in Botswana? Plus, we discuss the African Cup of Nations soccer tournament in our second episode with African Arguments. This is the most important sporting event on the continent, and it matters just as much for politics as it does for sporting fans. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. In late June, Ethiopia's army chief and the head of the Amhara regional government were killed in two separate but presumably related attacks. It began on Saturday night, nearly 500 kilometers away in Bahadar, one of Ethiopia's nine autonomous areas. Witnesses reported hearing gunfire. The region's president had been shot and killed in his office, along with his aide. This is the most serious threat to Prime Minister Abiy's rule. It's a devastating reminder of how fragile Ethiopia is right now. Joining me to talk about these assassinations and other topics are Richard Downey, a senior associate at CSIS, Trina Bolton, a program officer at the State Department's Sports Diplomacy Division, and Ayodeji Rotinwa, African Arguments deputy editor. This is our second episode in partnership with African Arguments. Okay, Richard, we talked about Ethiopia way back in episode three. And at that time, we were very clear that the reforms that Abiy Ahmed are doing, you know, they're double-edged. They're incredibly important, they're commendable, they're much needed, but at the same time, he has really unsettled the political elite, particularly alienating the elite class of the Tigrayans who had run the government since the mid-90s and one of the more the largest ethnic groups, the Amhara. And so we saw a coup attempt in October 2018. Abiy faced it down with a push-up, a challenge to the rebellious soldiers to do push-ups Everyone laughed about it. It's actually not very good for military discipline at all. And then just recently on June 22nd, a renegade Amhara general who had been raising a militia and trying to incite rebellion uh, launched these terrible attacks on regional officials and, and probably on the chief of army staff, although that has not been confirmed. So, Richard, what do you think this all means? Is this an isolated attack or is this part of a larger problem regarding Ethiopia's political transition? Well, I don't think it is an isolated attack. Uh, you know, you mentioned the context of the, the attempt on Prime Minister Abiy's life uh, last year. Uh, no, I think it's part of a larger problem, and, and it's the most uh, serious threat now that we're facing to Ethiopia's political transition. I think Assistant Secretary of State Naj put it pretty well last week, and he aptly described Ethiopia as this sort of pressure cooker scenario. I think, you know, through the previous regimes of, of Melis and Hali Mariam, you, you had this sort of, this, this steam was kept in through repression and this sort of tensions that are inherent in Ethiopia's system of uh, ethnic federalism are sort of kept in, in check. Well, Abe's come in, you know, and he does deserve a lot of praise and support for taking so many bold political steps, but that steam is kind of pouring out now and we're seeing the destabilizing consequences of that. The fact that almost two and a half million people 
been forced to flee their, their, their homes in recent months due to the, the various violence that's been uncorked, you know, is really staggering and, and hasn't got sufficient attention. So I think I respect and applaud Abe and he deserves all the support that we can get. But I think he's almost sort of uh, take, bitten off more than he can chew here. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Reuters had a really interesting article just recently about how uh, some of the narrative around Abi, and I think we said this in episode three, may have been a little too triumphant. And there's a rebalancing happening. I think we're, it's very clear now how much of a high-risk reform effort this is. And I'm curious and worried about what the government is going to do next. It was a little disconcerting to see Prime Minister Abi speak on national television wearing military fatigues. This is what Salva Kiir did uh, just before the Civil War broke out in 2003. The government has arrested over 200 people, 50 of those from Amhara opposition party. The government continues to restrict access to mobile phone data, although it looks like Wi-Fi is back on. And so we need to remember that while Abi is a reformer, and he's talking about democracy in a plural society. His coalition, the backbone and the DNA of this party is autocratic. And it's very easy for him if he wants to, to tap into these tools. One last question on this, Richard, is their role for the United States? What should we be doing? You mentioned uh, Tibor Naj's comments earlier. I think we have a phenomenal ambassador out there, Mike Rayner, who really seems to understand the moment that Ethiopia is. But I wonder if there's anything more that we should be doing from Washington or from New York or, or even from our African partners. Yeah, right. I mean, I think the general point is that we've got to show constant high-level engagement here and, and during this critical and unstable moment. You know, the U.S. is in a decent position and it had good relations both with the current government now and also the, the previous regime. So it knows to some extent who a lot of the actors are and who some of the spoilers are and, and leaning on, on some of those guys is going to be important. I think the other thing, though, is to sort of um, show a bit of, of humility and try and really understand the country. It's such a complicated place, you know, 100 million also, the people, so many ethnic groups, and we sometimes get locked into, you know, putting out these easy to explain narratives on Ethiopia. I felt, uh, you know, under Meles, we, we kind of, to some extent, turned a blind eye to the authoritarian nature of the regime and, and sort of, you know, played up the, the development miracle. That was the story of Ethiopia. Now it's, you know, oh, Abe, the reformist coming in and shaking things up. But, you know, it's so much more complicated than that. So I think a little bit of nuance in the, the public diplomacy is going to be important as well. I absolutely agree. This is an opportunity to sort of take a little bit air out of the tires and to maybe walk away from Abbey mania and talk about the real challenges that Abbey faces. And I think, as we've said in our podcast before and in writings that I have done, is that he needs to bring more people along. He actually needs to go a little slower. And the economic agenda that he has, the privatization, thinking about uh, opening up the market economy, I mean, those are almost the most important things he could do for people to continue to buy in to what he is trying to bring to Ethiopia. I want to take a little time now to talk about Botswana, two developments that I think are worth our examination. First, rifts in the ruling party, the Botswana Democratic Party, the BDP. This party's ruled Botswana since 1966, transferred power between individuals several times, but recently it's experienced some turbulence. 
There's been a fallout between the current uh, president, Mokhwetzi Masisi, and Hama after some have accused Hama of interfering in the running of government. A friend of the podcast, former Ambassador Michelle Gavin, who's now at CFR, she had a great post where she suggested that it looks like an overwrought uh, soap opera. Essentially, the former president, Kama, stepped down from power last year, handing it over to his vice president, Masisi. This is pretty normal in Botswana politics. This is generally what happens every leadership cycle. It's the idea is you give your vice president the power of incumbency so they're better placed in the actual general election. But Kama and Masisi have fallen out. It has not been civil. Kama supported a rival candidate for the ruling party nomination. And now he's broken from the party, broken from the party, by the way, that his father founded. So it's actually a very big deal. And now it looks like either he's going to join with the opposition or there's a new party that has been formed and he may join that. So this is actually fairly common, Richard, right? We tend to see leaders, departing leaders, fall out with their successors, and it can get really ugly. Ahijo and Bia in the 1980s in Cameroon, and we're seeing it right now play out in Angola with Lorenzo and Dos Santos. I can make an argument that we're seeing small spats between Kabila and Chitsukedi in DRC. Michelle says, and again, I recommend you reading her blog, that this lively debate is positive, and it's an extraordinarily healthy thing. But what are your thoughts? Well, I agree with uh, Michelle. Lively debate is a good thing, um, provided it rises above the level of sort of personal animosity and, and name calling. And uh, I don't think we're quite there yet in Botswana. Wow, these guys really do not like each other. One thing that gives me pause for, cause for optimism in Botswana is that nothing in its sort of uh, post-independence history suggests that it's a country that's unstable. And that, you know, it's a country that when I look across the region, I think is probably one of the ones that's better able to absorb some kind of political realignment, which I think is what is taking place now. But I do hope they can sort of get onto more of a serious policy debate because, let's face it, there are serious issues in the country. You know, the need to diversify the economy and address sort of inequality and unemployment and, you know, really pressing issues. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. On an earlier episode, I said Malawi is going to be the most competitive election. I, I want to take that back now, or at least I want to amend it. I think this election is actually going to be very competitive. And maybe in a future podcast, we'll talk about Guinea-Bissau too. But this has energized the opposition. BBC did a really good interview with Dumaboka, who's the main opposition leader. I really recommend it. But the ruling party, the BDP, despite its you know longevity, is actually only getting about 50% of the vote, just a little over in the last two cycles. So depending on where Kama goes, it may make this election something to watch. I want to bring Trina into our conversation because there's one more development in Botswana that really does necessitate a conversation, which is a really good story. In June, the high court overturned a colonial error law criminalizing same-sex relations. So Botswana joins a number of its neighbors in the southern African region, uh, Angola, Mozambique, and South Africa, that have changed its laws regarding LGBTQ. It's still a challenge. There's still a lot of stigma, discrimination, violence against this community. But at least the laws of the land have changed. And, and Trina, your home at the State Department, the Bureau for Education and Cultural Affairs, has done some really interesting work around this issue in Botswana. Can you share? Yes. Yeah, so I'm with our sports diplomacy division, and we run two-way people-to-people exchanges using sports as the platform really to promote our foreign policy priorities, whether it's conflict resolution, women's empowerment, disability rights. We 
youth sports is our hook. And we work in all regions of the world, but I will say the lion's share of our requests from the embassies and the consulates uh, come from Africa. And we see Africa is ripe for positive social change using sports if programs are designed strategically to address real issues. So in Botswana in particular, I can highlight an exchange that we ran. It was in November of 2016. It was our Envoy program, and that's when we send American athletes to go overseas and act as ambassadors of goodwill on behalf of the U.S. government. And in November of 2016, we sent Joanna Lohman. She's a former U.S. women's national team player, a Washington Spirit former player. We just retired her jersey. She's an LGBTQ activist, and she's a member of Athlete Ally, which is an NGO focused on gay rights and anti-bullying as it relates to the sports space. So she went to Botswana. She was in Gaborone and Mon to lead soccer programs. Soccer is definitely a popular sport with uh, basketball kind of neck and neck. So that's to be continued. But we framed this program, working with the U.S. Embassy, The Post, to address girls' empowerment and inclusion more broadly. But it really opened the way to talk about respect for diversity. And Joanna, she really pushed her Find Your Cool platform. It's a campaign that inspires young people to know who you are in the deepest of your core, being absolutely comfortable and unapologetically proud. And she was very well received. Representatives of UNICEF, took part in programming, and the Botswanan Minister of Youth, Sport, and Culture joined, and then Ambassador Miller um, even scrimmaged with Joanna and um, these girls Wait, from- the ambassador did? In, in Air Jordans. Oh, he was man. out there. We need to have a find a video of that and post it. <laughs> I'm sure our public affairs team could come up with something. He was a good sport, and Joanna was great to let him on the pitch, but she also speaks very highly of her experience as an envoy, so we say it's a win-win. She's very enriched by interacting with these young people from Africa in particular. She's since gone on to to Cote d'Ivoire and we're sending her to Nigeria. But I will say it's not a one-off. A year later, the ambassador, he reunited with some of the young people involved in these clinics and programming on the UN International Day of Sport for Development and Peace, which is April 6th, if you didn't know that, donated some cleats, some soccer cleats, because they were playing barefoot on the hot uh, soil earlier. So that is just one program that we've done that ties in without explicitly maybe promoting or nailing an issue. It's it's more of a um, soft power approach to bringing people together in a positive way to, to look at things in a new way. I want to talk about the most important sporting event on the continent, which is the Africa Cup of Nations. Perhaps right now, there is nothing that fills Egyptians with joy like football. When the national team plays, everyone is glued to TV screens and literally praying for victory. Richard and I recently did a commentary entitled, There's More to Sporting Pride at Stake in the African Cup of Nations. We think this event is not just about goals on the pitch. It's also about politics, cultural pride, nationalism. And Deji, I'm thrilled that you're joining us because just a couple of days ago at the time of this airing uh, recording, you wrote this fantastic essay called In the Name of the Beautiful Game on African Arguments. And, and now there's going to be a series. There was also a photo essay recently about soccer and African life. So I'd love it if you could share with us why this event is so important. 
would say the African the African Cup of Nations, um, as you said, it's sort of it's a continent's premier footballing event, and in my opinion, sort of our greatest example or showcase of Black African sporting excellence. I think the first reason I would say it's very important because it's for young Africans all across the continent. It's one of the examples where we can sort of see black excellence and see heroes up close uh here's an example one of my uh, reporting i've done in the past i was speaking to this artist and he said here for him growing up that he was raised to believe greatness was not something that was natural to him as a black african man or a black african person but through this through the through this game through the sports through the to- tournament is the way to sort of sort of flip that um assumption and i think it's also a way to sort of build unity and solidarity amongst africans because one thing people don't realize is even as africans ourselves we sort of see ourselves through these like through these uh, dire headlines uh, about Kenya being a hotbed of terror or bombs going off in Mali. But this is sort of a way where we can come to an understanding about ourselves outside of you know the politics, the economy, sort of the death st- statistics and things like that. And I think also um, the, the, the term is especially important because um, it's unapologetically African. So in this tournament, there's the, the, the divisions, the typical divisions you'll find in news headlines about Sub-Saharan Africa and Southern Africa and North Africa, nothing like that exists when these 22 men are on the pitch playing, kicking a ball around. You know, they're playing for national, they're playing for their pride, they're playing for national identity, um, they're playing for the unity of the country, they're playing for peace, they're playing for oneness. Um, so I think that's sort of so it's, it's, it exemplifies that ideal that, you know, Africa is this sort of one united body and not divided. So I think that's why, in my opinion, I say that why the tournament is really important. That really resonates with me. Uh, as a student, I had a professor, a history professor who's South African, and he said, you just made me think of it, Deji. He said, uh, sports is the way that we South Africans imagine us as a nation, as a unified, mm. multiracial nation. I think, I think exactly. that, that rhymes with what you're saying. Richard, we interviewed a number of experts uh, about the tournament, um, both academics, sports journalists, and political analysts. And we talked about um, some of the specific matches that were important, uh, Algeria, Egypt. I was really interested in the fact that the Ghanaian president, Nana Kufuado, actually called one of his country's top stars who was retiring and sort of urged him to play for the national team, which he did. So what's going on? Why, why do these events have political significance? There's a lot at stake, obviously, for the competing nations, but uh, yeah, also their governments, and particularly the sort of authoritarian, more autocratic governments that sort of like to project uh, power and prestige. And so, yeah, looking at some of the matches so far, as we speak, we're, we're still in the first week of the tournament, but uh, DRC uh, Uganda was, was a big one for the, the first full day of the, the tournament. A lot of needle in, in that game, given the uh, the fact that they're near neighbours with a lot of unpleasant history between them. Uganda came out on top, uh, somewhat surprisingly, of that match. It was very interesting, somewhat amusing to see President Museveni's communications chief uh, sort of tweeting a video of uh, the president giving a sort of tactical team talk, as it was described before the match, and you know presenting that somehow as the key to the the Ugandan uh, success on the pitch. Another sign of how much was at stake, you had the DRC team recording a kind of mea culpa video apologizing to the nation in the aftermath of that defeat. So it shows just how much it it hurt them. There's a lot of stake also for the host Egypt, I think, you know, big potential uh, dividend if they win, but also a lot of pressure to, to deliver. You know, this is an autocratic regime that is very nervous of crowds, particularly some of the sort of ultra football fans affiliated with some of the leading club teams in in Egypt. That's why I think you're seeing a lot of near empty stadiums of the matches, apart from the Egypt ones uh, so far. 
that and the exorbitant ticket prices and the the cost of getting to to Egypt for for other people from the continent. I think the authorities will have been concerned, for example, that you know you've had chance. The opening game, fans chanting the name of a former international player, Abu Shaka, who, who now lives in uh, exile in Qatar. His bank account's frozen. He's been accused of consorting with the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, adding to the headaches for Egypt is the fact that, you know, President Morsi, the only democratically elected president in uh, that country's history, died sort of in the week leading up to the tournament. So, yeah, a lot of pressure on Egypt, the hosts, I think. I mean, you really, as a national government, whether you're Egypt or your team is in the game, I mean, you can either benefit from their success, bring your country together, uh, or as in the case uh, of DRC, you've got to find some way to make amends and make it right. Uh, The story of Algeria, I think, is really interesting to me, uh, given where it is in terms of the protests and its democratic transition. I think we could see a merging of Algeria's success with a hopeful trajectory, perhaps, about the protest movement. I would, I would think that both sides would try to leverage how the team does on the pitch. Uh, I, I want to turn to Trina, but first, maybe Deji, I don't know if there's any highlights for you in the last couple of um, the last week or so. Today is June 27th. We won't air for another two weeks. But in this first week, anything that sort of jumped out at you? Um, I think just to go off what Richard said as well about the empty stadiums, I think it's quite striking. Uh, something I've learned in the last week as well is for one of the one of the correspondents we're working with uh, for this series of African arguments is so because the stadiums in Egypt apparently built by the military and not given out to private contractors. So if we're, if if a protest or a skirmish was to break out in the stadium, um, the the citizens would be tried in military court and not civil court. So I, I don't know if that also sort of feeds into um, and also with the prices and just like where the the government sort of clamped down on, on protesters as well on protester groups. Um, um, why why we're seeing so many empty stadiums, which is really a shame because you want to have a stadium with big atmosphere with people chanting and things like that, but we're just not seeing that. Um, I think the other thing that I thought was really interesting this week is. Um, a player from the Egyptian team was apparently expelled for allegations of sexual sexual harassment. Um, I think that's really important in that Egypt's dictatorial regime or not is showing leadership in this sort of thing. Um, I believe that the player, his name is Amir Wada, had had previous allegations of, of sexual harassment in his club um, and he was dealt with pretty swiftly and he was um, he's been banned from, um, from the team. Um, probably the third highlight for me would be the Cam- the Cameroon, uh, sorry, the Ghana-Benin game. I think that happened about two days ago. Um, Ghana is a huge, I think, uh, probably one of the huge, some of the, uh, country with real footballing legacy as the uh, tournament goes, but was held by the Beninois, who really don't have any history to speak of in the games. Um, so just as a, as a spot lover and someone who's just watching as a fan, I'm looking forward to sort of the uh, the uh, more games that are competitive and more upsets like between Cameroon or Ghana or Senegal or, and Algeria. Uh, just, on, just on a lighter note, when I used to travel around Africa and um, I couldn't buy any more curios, I started buying uh, football jerseys. And so yeah. my Beninois Flying Squirrels jersey is like literally one of my <laughs> favorites. So I'm, I'm really happy that they're <laughs> doing so well. Um, okay, Trina, I want to give you the floor because clearly there's a lot of soft power opportunities around this game and it would be really helpful to understand I mean you hinted at it earlier in the Botswana segment is what is the theory of the case uh, for ECA and sports diplomacy 
Yes, great. So from this conversation, bottom line, football and soccer, it's powerful. Our sports diplomacy division really uh, tactfully taps in to this power of sports and builds bridges between Americans and people all around the world through this shared passion of sports, not just around mega sporting events. Every day, every month, we have an exchange running. So we have a group of uh, Zimbabwean wheelchair basketballs in Chicago right now focused on um, a a disability sports program. And we have envoys at any corner of the world at, at any moment. And we operate through grant partnerships with American organizations. So around the uh, Africa Cup of Nations, we are not doing a lot. I will say our office has been really focused on the Women's World Cup and big hand clap to the African teams that made it to France. Yes. Um, but I will say, um, I will, I'll highlight our global sports mentoring program because international delegates who have been a part of our flagship professional development exchange are involved in the Africa Cup of Nations. They're in um, Egypt right now. But um, more broadly, we have these different initiatives that we run and we turn to our colleagues in the field at the U.S. embassies and consulates to really help design the program so that they resonate with the community. It's a way for us to reach out to a new demographic that otherwise may not be invo- involved in you know, State Department activities or really interested in um in the policies that we may uh, like to engage in. Um, so our global sports mentoring program is our longer term exchange. We have a public private partnership with ESPNW, which is ESPN Women. And we work with the embassies um, every year to recruit the best of the best in the world of women's sports. So they might be journalists, they may be the head of a league or a federation, they may be a former Olympian or Paralympian. And they come to the U.S. for a five-week mentorship during which they're teamed up with a senior female executive in the sports sector here. They focus on an action plan that they'll put into play when they get back home that will empower marginalized communities through sports, whether it's sports business or actually sports participation. And so it's in its eighth year running. And we've had, um, we see sisters and brothers from Africa under this broader global sports mentoring program because there's a counterpart program on disability rights. But I will highlight that there are um, some delegates from Africa who are involved in the African Cup of Nations who have gone through our global sports mentoring program. So we have Majida. She's from Uganda. She came several years ago. We teamed her up with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. She is the former um, head coach of the Ugandan women's national soccer team. And she has two organizations, one of which is Tackle Africa. It focuses on uh, HIV AIDS prevention using soccer as the platform to educate uh, kids on the subject matter. And then she has Grow the Game for Girls, which is quite self-explanatory. She was called um, by the Ugandan um, uh, national TV station to run analytics at the uh, Africa Cup of Nations. So she's up there. Um, she's having a great time from what I can tell. And she's um, joined by uh, Aisha, who um, came on the Global Sports Mentoring Program. She was teamed up with Coca-Cola in Atlanta several years ago. And she is a, um, a leading sports journalist uh, uh, out of Uganda um, who's covering um, covering the games in in real time. Um, and they also, uh, I want to say, united with one of our delegates from South Africa, Akana. She is the first uh, FIFA-certified female ref from South Africa, and she was up in um, 
in Egypt and I asked her, are you there for um, for refing? And she said, no, I'm actually here for fun and to cheer, but I'm also networking and building um, connections with um, leaders in in the sport and the game. And, you know, she's focusing on her action plan that she developed while she was here at Gatorade in the United States. So we stay in touch with them and we see that they use their experiences and what they're doing um, back home in Africa. Um, and then in Nigeria, we have um, uh, Chisholm. She was teamed up with Fox Sports when she was here several years ago. She is a super sport uh, journalist, um, a woman in a man's world, but she is um, she's brilliant and dynamic, and she is covering the games. She's paired, I want to say, every post that she's made about um, the Super Eagles, she's paired it with a post about the Super Falcons. Good. Well, most of my, most of my posts are about the Super Eagles the Super Falcons. Deji, you too? That is so good. Yes. Yes. So she, um, she's there live and, um, and uh, staying in touch with all of the delegates who have gone through this program. So we really like to, um, to make uh, the experience valuable in the long run it's and great. sustainable. I mean, it's, it's great networking. And I think that that's, you know, this is all about people to people. And this is always the frustrating policy question. What more could we do? Is there more that we could do? So, you know, Richard and I had this interview uh, with a bunch of, as I said earlier, scholars and journalists. And, and one of the academics, you know, he thought that the U.S. had missed an opportunity here to, to engage with AFCON. Now we have a better sense of it uh, from, from Trina. But Richard, is that right? Is there more that we could do? What should we do? Look, so I'm I'm speaking from the perspective of uh, uh, being an avid fo- uh, football, sorry, soccer, uh, soccer fan. So I have completely uh, overblown notions of the, the potential of uh, sport to change the world. But um, yeah, I think ultimately whether the U.S. engages or not isn't going to be decisive. But as you mentioned, Peter Alegi, the, the academic from the University of Michigan, who we interviewed before, uh, he pointed out rightly, it wouldn't hurt for the United States to at least show some awareness that this event is going on, which uh, Africans and, and frankly, uh, a lot of people all over the world really care about. Um, so I do hope, you know, just on the on the micro front that U.S. embassies and competing countries are giving their local t- uh, staff time off to watch the games. And sure, it wouldn't hurt to send a senior dignitary to uh, a couple of uh, a couple of the games, uh, although I'm, I, I'd be leery of uh, doing uh, taking actions that would lend credibility to uh, the CC regime. I think just touching on what Trina said about the women's game, I think a, a real um, um, com- competitive advantage that the US has uh, on the field is in women's football. Um, and so, you know, the, there's such a dearth of investment in the women's game in Africa. We've seen Nigeria. Uh, and, and Cameroon compete pretty well uh, at the, the Women's World Cup with really, really uh, minuscule resources compared with what the, the, the men teams, are, the men's teams are getting. So maybe that's an area the U.S. can pump a little bit more support and investment into. As we fight that battle ourselves and um, really try to spread the global lessons of Title IX. Yeah. Equal pay and equal play um, across the board, at home and abroad. We're all about it. Well, that's a good point. And, and Richard, I I think that we don't have to wait until the next AFCON uh, to, to think about how we engage. I, I was actually inspired by Ambassador Miller's experience in Botswana. What can we be doing with the winning team? What is the sports clinics? What are the, you know, maybe my greatest, my greatest desire to bring maybe the winning team here to the United States? I mean, there's lots of stuff that we can do, even if we don't have that dignitary at the final 
in Cairo for all the reasons that you mentioned. So um, I don't I think this is a say, one and done, right? Um, our colleagues out at the embassies, they may well be doing their own post-driven sports diplomacy outreach around the games. I know in social media, there's they've been wildly supportive. Okay. Um, so our, our home shop in the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, we're a tiny team. And so we definitely uh, salute our colleagues who run their own sports programs um, all around the world. So there may well be some more activities that I just haven't been tracking because I've been focused on the Women's World Cup. <laughs> well, that's that's fair. We're, we're sending out the, the vibes to, to post uh, overseas that this is a great opportunity for engagement. Thank you to everyone. Please read the Africa Arguments series on uh, the Cup. Please read Richard and my interview. Uh, the, that's on our CSIS website. And I look forward to talking to everyone soon. Take care. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.